Let's pray. God, today we're gonna we're gonna do something that we don't often do around here, and that's we're gonna we're gonna tackle a lot larger passage of your word than than we really have time to to give justice to. Jesus preached this sermon, and uh, he did it all at one time. So I think it's important that we take a look at it all at one time. But God, if uh, we're going to take it seriously, we're going to look at ourselves and we're going to see ourselves in a light that we don't usually take time to look at because we maybe aren't going to look so good. So God, I pray that you would open our hearts and ears and minds and that uh, your Holy Spirit would just work on us, that that, uh, we would see and hear the things that you want for us to see and hear in this sermon from Jesus. God, pray that you would take the words that I'm about to speak that you've given me over the last week and pray, God, that you would... You would make them something worthy of, of the sermon that Jesus preached, God, that it would be something that would be beneficial for each and every one of us. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So we're going to look at uh, one of the most saturated and, and profound moments of Jesus' teaching today. We're going to have to move quickly. We're going to look at three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew to do that. What it means really is that we're going to bounce off of the top of a whole lot of verses without really getting in uh, the chance to get in and dig deep in any of them. And so we're going to move quickly. We're going to leave a lot more uncovered than we're able to cover. We're going to look at two passages, and uh, they, they come together. They happen at basically the same time. One is known as the Beatitudes, and one is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus preaches them to uh, a small crowd, and then the other one is to a much larger crowd. Beatitudes is a word that comes from a Latin word that means perfect happiness or blessedness. We would understand it as Christians, as Christian joy. The Sermon on the Mount is, really describes the area that Jesus was when he, when he talked to the people. It was a hillside on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't really a mountain at all. There's a picture here that uh, I took from a boat out in the, the middle of the Sea of Galilee. This is the north end. And what you're looking at there, that hill, that is the area that the Sermon on the Mount happened. We're going to uh, look at a couple other ones here in, in a little bit. But just to give you some perspective, is that's the countryside that this, this happened. And people lived in little towns and villages all throughout the area that very much looks just like that. This happened to be a calm day on the Sea of Galilee that we were all grateful for. As you know from the New Testament, they weren't all that way. This passage then is is really from the early part of Jesus' public ministry. And it's a statement in Jesus' own words of what He wanted His disciples, His followers, what He wanted them to be and what He wanted them to do. And it almost seems overwhelming because the problem that has happened since the day that Jesus spoke these words telling us who and what He wanted us to be, people have not done a very good job either following them or obeying them. It isn't an easy standard that Jesus sets, but it isn't an impossible one. It's not simple to take all of these words to heart and put them into practice. Not easy, but not impossible. And in all fairness, I have to be honest with you and say it's, it's a pretty daunting task to take a section of the Bible that if you've got a red-letter Bible, every letter is red. The best sermon that will be preached this morning on this topic will be the words of Jesus. My job as a preacher is to try to help put a little context and understanding to it, but please understand, there's nothing helpful that I've got to add, and I'm very well aware of that. Jesus preached a sermon that can't be improved on. 
He begins with the Beatitudes as the blessings, and, and they're the blessings that follow a true disciple of His. They're not blessings that come as a reward for hard work. They're not meant as blessings that this is what you will get if you do enough things right. That isn't the point at all. When we look at them, you'll understand that. They're blessings that are an inner peace that's revealed by God's grace to those who try to live by God's standard. As you know, it isn't easy. Part of what isn't easy is that the Christian church in America hasn't preached the full truth of God's Word. We preach the parts that are easy and that don't make us feel bad about ourselves. And so what we end up doing is we end up preaching messages that say, hey, you're doing great. And the message that we give people is that it's more important to appear to be a good Christian than to actually live, act, and conduct ourselves as real Christians it's almost like it's more important that we impress the world with what a great church we are rather than we impress God who we're really supposed to be living for. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount isn't about impressing people. It's about making sure that we understand what it is that He expects from us. We know at this time Jesus is in Galilee. Uh, he's in ministry is surrounding a, a town called Capernaum, which is kind of on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's already started to do some miracle things, and he's being known as a miracle worker and a healer. There's an area on the north shore there that that picture was looking at called Eremos Topos. It's a Greek word, and what it means is solitary place. It's the kind of place that pretty well fits the bill when you think of where might Jesus have gone to get away, to pray. And you know throughout the New Testament, it says over and over and over that He went away to a solitary place. He went alone in order to pray. Well, this is one of the places that Jesus would go to. It was very close to where His friends were, where He called the first disciples, and where He lived a lot of His life. It's also the kind of place that lends itself pretty well to a large crowd gathering. So the next picture we've got is, this is the area they actually called Eremos Topos. It's a flat thing, a flat area on the top of the hill that you were looking at from the Sea of Galilee. There's this tree. I don't believe that tree was around 2,000 years ago, but the fat, flat part on the top of the hill was people still gather there today. The next picture is looking out at the Sea of Galilee so you get an idea of just how close this was. When Jesus called those first disciples as fishermen, it's because that's what an awful lot of the people did here. They, were, they fished for a living. Most of what happens in and around the Sea of Galilee happens this close to the water. Now there's a road between the hill and the water, but other than that, it's pretty much largely unchanged topography. And when you get there, you have a real sense, a real understanding of what it was like to have lived in Jesus' day. It's unlikely at this point that Jesus was able to go very far without being followed by a crowd that was curious to see what it is that He might do next. He was doing things consistently that... Normal people didn't do. It says in Matthew 5, verse 1, if you've got your Bible, that's where we're going to start. It says, Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. Throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus going away. But very often, He doesn't get to go away alone. He's trying to get some quiet and alone time, but people follow Him. The disciples followed Him here, more than likely a larger group than just the twelve. Luke 5.16, talking about Jesus' habit, says He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Why desolate places? Because Jesus really valued that quiet alone time with God. Makes me wonder, what did He go alone to pray about? Ever thought about that? I don't know about you, but I spend a pretty good amount of my time praying. Not really sure how I'd be able to do this if I didn't. But I wonder how much my prayers really are in any way similar to the things that Jesus prayed about. We know some of what He prayed about. We know He prayed about us. He prayed about the people around Him. They 
He prayed about his relationship with God, that he was always, would always be in God's will. We don't always know what or who he prayed to or prayed for, but we know who he was praying to. And the thing that's really awesome is that we are invited to pray to the very same Father God that Jesus did 2,000 years ago. He went to that hill to, to spend time with God. We can do that wherever we are. It's why we encourage you to go visit our prayer ministry during or after the service. Not that you necessarily need help praying, but sometimes it's good to have someone else to pray with. As we look at getting started on this, then, we've got the Beatitudes that come first. Beatitudes, he talked to his disciples. The twelve and probably a larger group of people, I don't know, twenty, fifty, a hundred, that had decided that they were going to follow him. They were going to learn what it was to be a follower of his. And so this first part of it is a pretty, a pretty small crowd message. And I thought a lot about it as I'm reading the Beatitudes. Why, why is he saying what he's saying? And I think that what he's doing is he's preparing them for the ministry. They're about to hear the sermon that he knows he's going to preach. And the sermon sets a bar that seems unreachable, but it really isn't. It just takes work. And as he gathers with the disciples, I think what he's doing is he's letting them know that if you do ministry the way that I'm asking you to do ministry, it isn't to the rich and the powerful and the famous. It's to the everyday men and women and children that exist all around you that most often you don't see. In our world, we would call them the have-nots. The people that have not the place, they have not the position, they have not the money, they have not the power or the prestige. And I think what Jesus is saying to the disciples in this first part of the Beatitudes is that if you want to follow me, learn to be a servant. Learn how to serve the people who you think already have nothing. He wanted his disciples to understand that it wasn't about judging and, and putting value on people based on what we see from the outside about what they have, but rather seeing people for who they are, what their hearts are. And that's what this first part, in a way, gets to. It's the how-to-be attitudes, or, or even better, the how-to-be-joy-filled attitudes. Just like Christians should display and, and show the world the nine fruits of the Spirit, what are they? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So also, so also, someone should describe us using the words of the eight Beatitudes. When people talk about you, do they use those words? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is that who people know you to be? Jesus would hope so. Unlike the, the Ten Commandments, which are full of thou shalt nots, and the purpose of the Ten Commandments is to give us structure, boundaries, to the relationship that we have with each other and with God. And what that does, because we understand more of what we shouldn't do, than what we've got the permission to do because we take that too far all the time. The Beatitudes are the R's, the what will happen, the blessed R's they've been called. They are the result of Christian discipleship. They're the result of living for Jesus. And everything about them is counter to what our world teaches us and tells us to believe. So where does it begin? We'll jump to verse 5 for a moment. It says, Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain. When He sat down, His disciples came to Him. Jesus is aware of the crowd that's following him. He, he's aware of everything that's happening. And he sat down at an area probably away from where the rest of the crowd was gathering in order to share the Beatitudes with his disciples before everybody else heard it. It's important to understand this was for the smaller group because they were the ones that were already committed to him. They're the ones that Jesus knows are going to face challenges and difficulties and persecutions. And he wants to address it and say, don't let it surprise you. If you're walking in my will, it's going to happen. The group likely included people who we never read about in the Bible, whose names are never mentioned. 
And as Jesus begins to speak, it's clear that a larger and a larger crowd gathers. So where would they be? Their area behind that flat space where the people were sitting down in the earlier slide, there is this area that just kind of lends itself as a natural hillside to a large crowd gathering. It's believed the Sermon on the Mount was given here and also the feeding of the 5,000 very likely happened in this place. As you look down the slope to the right, the Sea of Galilee exists. And we tried this when we were there. If you speak loudly on the top of the hill and just use this voice down to the people who are on the bottom, it's a natural amphitheater and people can hear without a microphone. Jesus didn't have a microphone to stage or, or a platform or speakers. He had His voice. And this area would have worked for Him to speak to hundreds if not thousands of people and them all be able to hear Him. So the Beatitudes. Let's read them. We're not going to be able to stop and talk about all of them, but let's go through them. Jesus opened His mouth and He taught them saying, here are the blessed are statements. Now ready? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and other utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A pretty sobering message to begin, isn't it? Those disciples must have heard it and thought, what in the world are we walking into? If Jesus says that's good stuff, what exactly are we going to face? But you know what we found out is none of those twelve left them until Judas did at the very end. While Jesus is teaching this smaller gathering, a larger group is beginning to gather around Him and listen to this teaching. And Jesus delivers then a simple sermon that outlines some of the basics, some of the, the counter-cultural basics of what it is to live as a disciple of His. Maybe you've asked yourself, if you haven't, you should. Self, what should I do today to live more like Jesus wants me to live? You ever asked yourself that? be a good question. What do I need to do today that would be different than what I did yesterday in order to become more and more like Jesus? My answer to you would be this. Begin by taking any part of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to take a a quick look at. Begin by putting any part of that into practice. Don't look at it for someone else. Look at it for you. Say, what is it that I can do to live a little bit more like Jesus? Take the words of the Sermon on the Mount and don't say that they're impossible to reach, but rather say, with God's help, it's something that you want to do. The crowd that would have gathered that day would have wondered because they weren't the close followers. Why are these people drawn to Him? What is it to to follow Him? Why, Why did some of these guys give up their lives? What does it mean to be a follower of this guy? So Jesus is going to answer that question. Here's the deal, though. The bulk of this message today... If it's going to do you any good at all, it isn't going to happen here in the next 20 minutes. It's got to happen when you leave this place and you go home and you open your Bible and you go back to the parts that we looked at and the parts that we jumped over and you start reading it for yourself and saying, God, what does this mean? How do I put this into practice in my own life? How do I use these words to help starting, start to describe me? Truth is, there's six months worth of very full sermons here. There's no way that in a single Sunday we're going to cover all of this ground. 
Jesus tells us how to live, to think, to act, to pray, and to be Christians in the world. Fact is, if we're going to be honest, we fail miserably at putting into practice this message of His. Jesus sets a bar that seems so high, it feels impossible. But it's not. It's just difficult. And it's contradictory to what the world tells us. It's completely different than what we hear all around us. Any one of us could keep every letter of every paragraph of the sermon that Jesus preaches if we wanted to, but, but we don't. We don't want to keep it because it's too much work. So all too often what we do is we ignore it and we pick and choose parts of Scripture that we're okay with. We take the thou shalt nots that we can handle and we say, I'm doing great with that. And we feel good about ourselves and we start looking at other people's problems. But even those simple things that we think we've got under control, Jesus is about to address and say, take another look at yourself. So I'm going to jump through this. I'm going to skip more than we're going to cover. But I want to start in chapter 7, verse 1 first, because this is important to remember as Christians that we lead and, and show others the love and the grace that we expect from them. So near the end of this message, Matthew 7, 1, Jesus says this, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your, that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? As we go through this, as you go through life, as you work to live as a disciple of Jesus, it does you no good to point out and look at the sins and faults and flaws of someone else. Because if you've got the idea that you can stand in judgment because you don't have sin anymore, you're absolutely wrong. You would be the one person outside of Jesus in history that figured that out, and you're not going to do it. And so as we take a look at this, my challenge to you is don't think about someone else that needs to hear it. Think about what it is that God needs for you to hear. Jesus Himself said, I didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. Take a look at what Jesus is saying to you. Look at the depth of your own heart, the truth of who you really are, who God knows that you are. Look at your own sin and how this sermon that Jesus is speaking speaks to your life. What is it that you need to hear, to understand, and to change? So here we go, chapter 5, verse 14. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He begins by saying that if you're going to follow Jesus, you are going to be an example for Him in the world. People are going to watch you. They're going to look at what you say and how you live and what you do. We should understand ourselves and live as ambassadors of heaven here on earth. All too often people run from churches because churches judge and condemn and shame them and there's no place for them anymore. That's not being the light of the world. Jesus says, don't, don't worry about that stuff. Let your light shine before others. It doesn't say you need to point out the darkness in someone else. Let your light shine so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It isn't even about you. When we get it right, it's about God. Verse 21, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. It's part of a commandment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire might believe that you're a good person because you've never killed anybody. you got that commandment down cold. 
You say, you know what? I'm doing pretty well. I've got 10% of them figured out perfectly. There's a couple of people I wouldn't mind, but I haven't done it. Right? Jesus says, well, before you get too big for yourself there, if you've even been angry with somebody, you've broken that one. Why does He say that? Because the truth is, anger, hatred, malice, and murder all come from the same place. They come from a dark heart. And Jesus starts right out saying, you're supposed to be the light, and there shouldn't be any darkness in you. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Men and women, how are you doing with this one? We can say, well, okay, well, I haven't technically committed adultery. However, how are you looking at the people around you? Jesus says, if you're looking at them with any lustful intent at all, you're guilty. Stop pointing your finger at somebody else. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if anyone's got this figured out, but I bet you'd be pretty quiet. Jesus says earlier on that He didn't come to put an end to the law, but to fulfill the law. What He's doing is He's using Old Testament law and saying, here's what it really looks like in practice, folks. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's Old Testament teaching. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So let's take it away from divorce and let's just say, how about relationships? How do you treat the people around you? Not just husband and wife, but how do you treat the people around you? What kind of house do you have? Is your home safe for the people that live in it, for your spouse and your children? The people that live with you, do they thrive under your care? Or is your family, do you all look for reasons to get away from each other so that you can be who you really are? Do people love to be around you because you make them feel good about yourself? Are you nurturing of each other or are you suffocating each other? Unfortunately, in America, divorce has become such a huge situation. And as Christians, we need to extend grace and love and forgiveness to each other as well as to ourselves. You can't take this and say, well, I got divorced, my life is over. That's not what Jesus says. And we need to realize as Christians that grace, mercy, and forgiveness need to be what we lead with, including divorce. Verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Enough said. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Be a person who tells the truth in love, not who loves to tell the whole truth. It's easy to say, well, the Bible says tell the truth in love, and I love you, so here's what I know. It's not what we're talking about. But your yes be yes and your no be no. Keep it simple. Does your word mean something? And do you love and care for others with the things that you say about them? Do people know you to be a person of your word? When you say yes, do you follow through? When you say no, does it mean no? Verse 43, have you heard that it was said, you, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That crowd that day had to say, okay, he just fell off his rocker. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Are you getting at the idea here that Jesus is trying to address our hearts and our motives? He's trying to get at how you think, who you are, the people that you reach out to and connect with. Are you able to love as a Christian the person that you are most frustrated or angry with? You don't have to like them or what they've done, but you're told to love them. Going further, would you give the best of what you have to someone you didn't like? Jesus said you should. 
See, it's so easy to love people who take good care of us. The people that we like, the real test is, how do we treat the people we don't like? And we all have them. Next chapter, verse 7, he says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And he says, pray like this. Did you catch that? Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. See, Jesus knows because He knows in this constant communication that He has with God, God already knows what Jesus needs. What does God want from Jesus and what does God want from you? Communication. just wants to hear from you. I can't tell you how many times I hear my parents say, I wish you'd pick up the phone and call. So I wish you'd stay in New London. We should stop by and have more coffee. You know what they're saying is, we just want a relationship with you. It's not a bother. It's a wonderful thing. God's just saying, I know what you need, but I want you to come and talk to me about it. And so Jesus says, when you pray then, pray like this. This is a model for prayer. It's not the only prayer we should pray. And for that matter, Jesus doesn't say pray this prayer. He says pray like this. So how about right now, right here? You're going to look at the screen because the words are a little different than what you know. Pray this with me and realize that this prayer was given to those folks in the context of a lengthy sermon about who to be and how to live. And Jesus says, okay, here's how you pray. So would you please join me? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, and we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's a power there when you realize those words come from Jesus. You're not just reciting something. You're not just doing something by rote memory, are you? Jesus says when, when you come to God, you pray like this. And that prayer is all about recognizing who God is, being grateful, and being in relationships. What's the whole Sermon on the Mount about? The very same thing. He goes on, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses or their sins, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. How is that for a burden of responsibility? The degree to which you are willing to forgive is the measuring stick by which you will be forgiven. Does that change your heart for forgiveness? When I figured this one out, it changed me completely. You can spend all your life waiting for someone to come back and apologize to you, and it's never going to happen when what God really is concerned about is do you need to forgive them? Do you need to ask for their forgiveness? God isn't worried about where someone else stands around you. God is worried about where you stand. God is worried about where your heart is. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. See what Jesus does there? He challenges people to say, well, what really matters to you? What, what, what's the thing that, that you're really going to follow? What are you going to serve? And then he comes back at the end, only two lines later, and he knows exactly where we live. You can't serve both God and money. And the people had to go, ooh. 
So what will it be? Will you serve God the way that God presents Himself to us in Scripture? Or will you serve the money that you feel like you've earned and you deserve to keep? See, God, God, that's easy because it's all a free gift, right? Money we have to earn, we work for. We think that's mine, I deserve it. And God says, well, you know what? It's got a funny thing. It's got a funny way of controlling you. Which one do you serve? One, what's your real treasure? Every Sunday you hear me and whoever's up here use the word tithe. Tithe is that first 10% of our income that God asks us to return to Him. And it isn't because God needs the money. It's because God wants us to know what we really trust and who we really trust. Do you trust in your money enough to give 10% back to God? Because He already gave you 100%. That's a funny word. We use it in churches. People get upset all the time. I know that that word gets some people real offended real quickly. And if that's you, take it up with God. My job is to preach the word. So what about this treasure in heaven? You know, the the older I get, the more that I think I, I understand that. The thing that's closest to God's heart is people. The thing that God wants, He makes, the, makes it clear in Scriptures, He wants everyone to be in heaven. But that doesn't mean everyone gets to go. It is only through a relationship with Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. What's the treasure in heaven? When God puts the treasure in heaven and money together, I believe that when we are free giving back to God, the treasure that we're going to find in heaven is the people who are there who are reached because of that money that we give. You may never meet them. You may never know their names. You may on this earth have no idea that you ever did anything to touch them. But you know what? I think when we get there, we're going to meet that treasure. And I think those people will come up to us. And they're going to say, thank you, because I know you couldn't really afford it, but you gave this to that cause, and this person reached me because of it. Thank you. I'm here because of you. That is treasure. How much money would it take for you to live whatever life you want to live and never meet one person who says that to you in heaven? There is no amount for me. I can't imagine anything more valuable, more treasure-worthy on earth than to know that someday maybe somebody will say thank you for the little bit that I did here that helped them to get there. That's how God ties money and treasure together. Verse 25, don't, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to, this, to a span of life? Well, by way of confession, um, I know I'm not supposed to worry, but like you, I do. I know I shouldn't. I know it's an exercise in futility. doesn't add one moment. doesn't do a bit of thing. And so I tell myself, I'm problem solving. That's how I justify it. I'm not worrying. I'm problem solving. <laughs> no, I'm worrying. The Bible makes it real clear. Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't worry. So my question then is this. And it's what I ask myself when I catch myself going there. If I'm going to pray, why do I worry? When I pray, and I don't care how big my problem is, when I give it over to God, that's God's problem. And on the scope of creating the entire universe on the spoken words, my problem's not a real big deal. When I turn my problem over to God, no matter how big it is to me, now that's God's problem. But if I'm going to hold on to that, if I'm going to worry, why in the world would I pray? Worrying means I want to keep control of the results to myself. I realize that's what my worrying is. If you're going to worry, don't pray. But if you're going to pray... Don't worry. It's God's problem now. Verse 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Simply put, don't worry about the sin in somebody else's life until you have expunged all of the sin from your own. Simple truth, that's not going to happen, so don't worry about your brothers and sisters. You know what? You can love them as friends, and if you've got the relationship that says, hey, I'm not sure you're heading down a road that's going to be good for you, that's one thing. But being that judge and jury that comes out of the Christian church and uses the Bible to justify your actions is not what Jesus calls us to do. Whether it's someone else's divorce or someone else's gossip or someone else's addiction or someone else's you name it. Don't spend your time pointing out somebody else's problems until you've got all of your sin taken care of and you won't this side of heaven. Patrick did a devotion for us a a few weeks ago at staff meeting and it really stuck with me and what he talked about was stay in your lane. Stay in your lane and pay attention to the things that you're called to do. You know, when you're in a lane and track, you've got, you've got boundaries about where you're supposed to go and you see a little bit of what's going on around you, but if you turn around and look behind you or you look too far ahead, you're going to get out of your lane. So stay in your lane. So on this one, in my mind, I say stay in your lane and mind your own sin, sin business. turns out it's God's Holy Spirit that will convict a believer of their sin. I know that because it's what He does with me. You don't have to tell someone else about their sin. The Holy Spirit will take care of that. It's not your job. Take that energy and point someone to their Savior instead. Lay up treasure in heaven. Verse 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Simple. Easy. Go do it. You don't like the way someone treats you? Then treat them the way that you want to be treated. I heard years ago we teach people how to treat us. What are you teaching people? You don't like the way that people treat you? How do you treat them? Because you're showing them how it is that you expect to be treated in return. Verse 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Remember we talked about the fruit of the Spirit earlier? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. You want to look at someone's true heart or their true motives? Look at the fruit in their lives. People want to be around them? Do you see love, forgiveness, gentleness, self-control coming from them? You can't fake fruits of the Spirit when a person's motives and desires and intentions are evil or unhealthy. In the end, there's just nothing good that can come from them. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's tough because we think all you have to do is say, well, I believe in Jesus, I'm done. It's not quite that simple. The Bible talks a lot about living as a disciple. There's more to being a Christian and going to heaven than simply saying the right words. It's a matter of the heart and the life and the fruit that we bear. Then he comes to verse 24, chapter 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. They both had an opportunity to build a house. They built it differently. The weather was the same. They had very different results. Why? Because they made different choices. What's your choice? 
What will you do? Live for Jesus or live for yourself? Will you put the words of Jesus' sermon, not mine, the words of Jesus' sermon into practice in your life as the new normal for you? Will you hear the words, ignore them, and watch your life fall to pieces and wonder why it is the world hates you so much? It's up to you. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made His desire for you completely clear. He gives you everything that you need to know. Verse 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at His teaching. For He is teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes or their teachers. See, here's the deal. We stand before you and we preach as preachers and we try to understand God's Word and we study it and we research it and we carefully craft these sermons so as that we don't waste words because that just wastes your time. And we stand here as preachers doing the best that we can do. Jesus didn't preach as a preacher. Jesus preached as God. When you go home and you read chapter 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew, that's a sermon preached by God. The message today is powerful not because of me, but because the strongest words from this message are straight from Jesus. Why should you care? Why should you pay attention? Simple, because Jesus took time to preach it. Jesus wanted us to hear it and to know it. There is power not because of my words, but because that they are because they are his words. See the problem is what we do is we hear it. Something in us gets a little unsettled. We're convicted by them. Our hearts start to get changed and we realize how difficult truly living as a disciple of Jesus really is. How being a Christian is the easiest gift that we'll ever receive and it's the most challenging life that we'll ever try to live. And so what we do is we go on to the next things. We fill our minds with something else. We go back to living the way that we were. We go back to believing what we did and, and doing what we've done. And sadly, all we end up doing is moving ourselves further and further and further away from who God created us to be. Today, do something different. Challenge yourself with the words of Jesus, not mine, with Jesus' words. Do something different and move closer to Jesus. Don't use this sermon as a reason to judge and condemn others. Use it as an opportunity to look at yourself. Jesus is never, God's never going to question you for how well you critiqued someone else's life. He's going to question you for how you lived your own. Every week we invite you to go to one of our prayer corners so that you can get yourself right with God, whatever that means for you. For some of you, what you really need to do is you really need to lay down your life and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. Maybe today's your day. God's waiting. If we really took advantage of the opportunity that our prayer ministry offers to us, there'd be lines in those corners every morning because the problems that we have in our world are that big. But we're so worried about what somebody will think about us that we just walk out of here and we keep doing what we've been doing, keep struggling with what we've been struggling with. Maybe what you really want is God's Holy Spirit to start to soften the rough edges, begin to shape you more into the likeness of Jesus. You know what you need to do? All you need to do is to step away from where you are and go talk to one of those people and say, I'm tired of not being able to do it on my own. I recognize that I need Jesus to do for me what I cannot. So where do you go from here? My advice is take these words of Jesus and study them this week. Read them. Pray over them. 
Ask God what you need to work on. And then work on it. Don't say it's too hard and you can't. Don't say it's impossible. You never will. Take one small section and go to work on it. And when you begin to get an understanding of it, go to the next. Don't wait. Don't put it off. There's no day like today to hear the words of Jesus and respond to them. Because talk about building that house, the fact is we don't know how long we have in this life to get that house built. And where we spend eternity is based completely on the decision of where it is that we chose to build that house. Let's pray. God, thank you that 2,000 years ago Jesus gathered on a hillside just off the Sea of Galilee and loved people enough to be honest with them. He loved people enough to tell them this is the real cost of following Him. This is what it really means to be a disciple of His. God, we hear it today and we look at others' problems and others' faults and others' sins and we look at that as being an impossible task and so we just don't even try. That's not why Jesus preached it. Jesus preached it to introduce us to a different culture, a different kingdom, and that's yours. God, I'd ask that your Holy Spirit would move in us, would work in us, would challenge us, would encourage us, and would grow us, would give us a desire to take the words that Jesus spoke and to put them into practice in our own lives. God, that we would build a house that would be built on the foundation of your word, not on our best efforts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, congratulations. You just made it through an entire overview of an entire semester course at seminary in one message. Well done. Eight years ago, eight and a half years ago when we started, I said, I want this time right at the end of the sermon or service for if somebody missed the message or, or what, what would be a two-minute recap of, of the whole point of the morning. And that's just the last thoughts or the challenge. That's what that's kind of always been about. So here it is. You've got one life. This is the life. To build the house that will be your home for this time on this earth. The thing is, the house that you build also determines, based on what you build it on, where you spend eternity. Once you die and see the options, you don't get to make your choice. It's too late. You have this lifetime to build this house. Are you building it on the rock-solid foundation of Jesus' teachings and the never-changing Word of God? Or are you building it on the shifting sands of your own wants and whims and desires, the ever-changing ideas that some places that call themselves Christian churches have that seem to be an ever-moving target that changes what God says? It ends up being the sinfulness that is the result of our choices. It's your life. It's your choice. It's your house to build. Choose wisely, but I'll tell you this. Everything that you need, the answers, the truth, the, bru- the blueprint for the life that you were created to live is right here. It's not too hard to read. It isn't too tough to figure out. Just like the Sermon on the Mount, it isn't unattainable. So what do you do now? You can either leave this place and go back to doing what you've always done, or you can leave this place and do something different. Even if you've been building your house on the sand, it's not too late to start building it on the foundation of the truth of Jesus. And the cool thing is, Jesus is waiting for you. It's your choice.
What do you do?